All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is the Chief Information Security Officer of Fox News, Fox Business and Fox Television stations, John Terrell, uh future mayor of New York City. How are you, John? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ryan, what's going on, man? I'm very good. Uh, uh really keen to have you on this call uh to help the listeners and help me more or less understand uh the role of the CISO. Um when you when you took on this job you're relatively new there at uh Fox. Uh when you took yeah, on this job at the moment. Why would anyone want to be a CISO? Turnover <laughs> is really high. I think I saw some numbers it's in the 2 year range the ten, average tenure of a CISO. Um help me help me understand like the the attraction of the CISO role and you know what are the what are what are some of the the priorities for for, for sure. someone jumping into this role so for me it, i i think part of it is CISO and being in the security world is really kind of what i know from a, a professional standpoint um So prior to this I had been a CEO of a security product company um and the sales and marketing and all of these other components were a little bit more more foreign to me. And uh I I think it it was just kind of more natural for me to go back into an operational role that I I felt extremely confident in. Um now why why would anyone in general want to be a CISO? I, I that's that's a great question. Um I think I think Wendy Nather had a tweet a, a, a year or two ago uh it was a response to someone asking uh how do you pronounce CISO is it CISO or CISO and she responded with it's pronounced scapegoat and i thought that was great uh with, with all of the snark that was definitely uh, appropriate with it um i i i kind of joked around uh, uh, that there was the kind of this uh the CISO cycle that was like two years and and one month and the first six months is uh you've just hired this brand new CISO and they're getting in they're getting their arms around stuff and they're planning everyone's very excited the next 6 months is the CISO says all right here's this plan and we're going to try to execute on it and uh the following 6 months is they're failing to execute on it and things are going downhill rapidly and the last 6 months is they're searching for another CISO and that last one month is the severance that they get when they get let go and the new CISO comes in Right, so, but and and it's and it's and, and it's not even a joke. I had a podcast with Katie Masoris where she talked about this uh, CISOs and the three envelope rule, where you basically, you know, blame your past, blame yourself, and then uh, uh, get ready to head out the door. And it's not even a joke. But you talk about yeah. you talk about that second six months where things are not getting executed. What is it? Budgeting issues? Is it selling security to the CEO and really getting buy in for it, or is it just? the general chaos in 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 just trying to secure information you know i i think it's an issue about correctness um so a, a lot of CISOs want to come in and want to essentially do all of the things that they hear their thought leader in twitter ecosystem people talking about which is it is great right like we should all strive to do the best the best that we can do things correctly but in many cases it can be tough to convince the stakeholders that actually own whether it's the infrastructure the business process or the staff uh, you know the the budget whatever those constraints are it's not just that you have to talk them into to do the right thing it's to do things that are difficult 
And nobody wants to do more work, especially when it's hard, grueling work. And most of the real work that needs to be done these days is hard, grueling work. It's asset identification. It's trying to figure out patching. Like what should be a straightforward, you know, meat and potatoes thing is really difficult for a lot of people. I mean, look at companies like uh, uh, Titanium. They make a crazy amount of money in just telling you what you have. And like that, that's a hard problem. And it just takes a lot of time to dig in. And I think there's not a, it's partly a talent thing and not just security talent, but just really strong kind of technical talent that can dig in. Um, I, I think that's true sometimes for like governance and compliance stuff. I mean, I, I've got some friends that have spent painstaking months just sitting around with giant, giant worksheets going through all of the different ways that they map to ISO or PCI or NIST or whatever it is. And like it's just a lot of work, and yeah. I think that and boring work. Just, yeah, it's it, it it's not it's not fun work going through. I, I would have affectionately called sometimes. Uh, it's archaeological computer science, but this very idea, important work. Yeah, crucial important work. Yes, you're digging through people's stuff. They've got 15 years of applications and servers sitting around. They can't reboot them because they don't know if they'll come back up, much less patch them. And they don't know what it does for all intents and purposes. And, and that's not, I mean, I, I think anyone listening to this is going to go, yep, unless this company is like two years old, in which case you're hoping you don't have much technical debt yet. Right. Then and you yeah. can do it from scratch. Then it's, it's fun exactly. and easier. Everybody's going through that. Um, so, I mean, why would anybody want to be a CISO? Uh I mean, the pay is better now than what it was, <laughs> but it's it's still not changed for kind of what, what those challenges are. But I it could also the, be a fun challenge. I could imagine a lot of people are intellectually stimulated by, it, you know, the it, opportunity to really it, get in somewhere is. new. It is. And and, w- and one of the things that I, I kind of got a, I, I got lucky and also kind of uniquely kind of situated was uh, the week after I started with Fox, um, they, they announced the 21st Century Fox deal. And some of the things that I, I was talking with their CISO of, of, of 21CF and some of the different business leaders was about uh, concepts around like Beyond Corp. And where, where we're in kind of a unique position is that because of the Disney deal and because there's so much of these things that are changing here and the way that they're going to split out certain uh, uh, c- certain uh, constituent companies, uh we actually get to take some big steps and, and kind of come at it fresh and say, you know, if we were going to redesign our corporate network, what would that start to look like? Um, so we're, we're getting the chance to kind of start talking to people about, you know, let's, let's kind of forklift these things from these old environments into new ones that we can build from, from the ground up in kind of a secure by default way. And there's, there's a lot of support for that because, People admit they're like, yeah, we've we, we've got technical debt. We've been around twenty two years. We've we've been building technical debt because we've been keep, keeping the business going, and you, you cut corners where you know where like where you can, and eventually you go back and fix it. And it just happens that uh, during during a merger or like an acquisition is not a bad time to go to go through and do that. So. Uh, we, right, but you're a, also you're also taking on that technical debt from from the third party company, the extra company, um, joint, you know, so, whatever their so, mergers and so acquisitions. That's true. 
yeah, that, that that's completely true. But fortunately, or or unfortunately, which way you see it, um, the new Fox entity that'll have Fox News and Fox TV and all that is the one that I'm kind of building the future state for. Right, right. Which is a fresh, brand new company. So Disney gets to deal with, you know, the the existing stuff. We we actually get a really kind of unique chance to to rebuild this stuff from the ground up. Uh, which can be an exciting thing. Like it, it turns that that role of a CISO into not just kind of a a policy wonk that's sitting there trying to tell tell you why you're not allowed to go to the site, and more about building interesting things. How much is a CISO uh, a policy wonk versus in the weeds, figuring out patch management, figuring out uh, you know uh, protecting from phishing attacks and all the the you know in the weeds stuff? Are you not you specifically, but is the CISO expected to be in the weeds tracking and managing all those things in addition to figuring out all the, uh, you know, policy stuff? That, that's a great question. Um, and, and one that there's no real good answer for, because I think very similar to kind of like how startup founders kind of have different uh, like personalities and that, that they can be kind of dynamic and different and have different skill sets. I think your CISOs can do that too. I, I think they're they're wildly different based on the person and based on like the organization. Um, th- there's some folks that I've seen that are amazing at managing up and communicating, and that are not the best operational managers. Like they don't manage the people on their team well or the career side. I've met some though that are uh, you know fantastic people managers. And that know how to run projects well and and can coordinate, you know, can do that. But they're not necessarily forward thinking. They're they're not kind of your security strategist. And there's no right or wrong to any way to structure that role. But I think you do need kind of uh, two two people to to really be able to run an org well. Mm -hmm. Because it's so hard to find somebody who's kind of visionary and communicating up and doing that well and managing the team and the day-to-day and the, the, the kind of execution. Right. So, and the, CISO's, the CISO's biggest nightmare, obviously, is waking up in the morning or getting a call at night about a breach. Uh, yeah. A significant breach, not only involving company assets, but possibly involving um, uh, customer data as well. Um, and and you want to have that insight into the, in the weeds uh uh, stuff so that it, at least you sleep a little more comfortably at night. But at the same time, like you said, it, it, it comes down to management styles, the right people around you, making sure you have all your teams in place, blocking and tackling, putting out all those fires, those daily fires of patching. How 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 do you balance that? I, I think to a certain extent, you, you've got to take a step back. So uh, uh, many years ago, I was working at a... a, a, a I guess a stock exchange. People are going to find it on LinkedIn, but the, the gist of it is, the guy that I, that I was working with there, um, he was a really nice guy, and he was actually pretty smart. He got it, but this was at peak lulsec. It was just before the Occupy Wall Street stuff had kicked off, and he just got crushed by the stress. It wasn't because he wasn't bright and didn't know what the thing to do was. It was that he made some broad promises. Well, he he started himself on the wrong foot. He made these broad promises to executives saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make sure you don't get hacked. 
and 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 that's that's an unrealistic expectation, and it's one he put on himself in a time that he didn't necessarily have budget or buy-in or just even a team to execute on it. Much less, even if he did, it's still a ridiculous statement. Uh, th- there are going to be breaches. You can make it more expensive f- for those people that are that are trying to attack you, but like. You, there's no guarantee you'll stop it, especially in the case of like a, a nation state, if you're not a military or intelligence organization. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he started to crack under the pressure, and there, there would be minor incidents that blew up and you know, would occupy an operations team's entire weekend or holiday because they're trying to search through the weeds for data that they're not recording, they don't have signal on, they know their alerts are bad, like, there were a bunch of things that were kind of no fault of their own for the the mess that they walked into. But the stress is what ate them alive. Because instead of going back to basics and trying to figure out, you know, what are some baselines that we can work from? Like, like what are some good things that we can start with to just get a handle on things? Instead of doing that, they kind of jumped in and tried to have this tip of the spear advanced program and just got crushed with it. And I, I've seen a, a lot of places do that, that they, they want to be this kind of high-tech, super sophisticated security apparatus with threat intel and malware analysts and all that. I'm like, guys, you, you, you don't know how many computers you have. You, right, right. You don't know if they're patched. Like that, that's a crazy Just your basic setup. asset management is not in place and you're chasing yeah. after fancy new toys. Exactly. You touch um, on a, it's just such a common story these days. You touch on a couple of things that, that, that I have on my list I wanted to check off with you. You talked about, <laughs> you know, just getting buy-in from uh, senior management. Is it easier today to get budget, buy-in, support, resources uh, uh, for cybersecurity? Uh, you know, with all the news, you can't, you can't not hear about Russia hacking or nation state yeah. hacking and everything else. Is it is it much easier today than, say, five, six years ago to just stress the importance of security in an organization? I'd say that that's a fair statement. I think in the last couple of years, it really has kind of become so top of mind for board members and, 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 and not just in a, you know, they're, they're paying lip service or is, you know, a platitude that, oh, it's top of mind for executives. I, I think that that really is true. But security is one of these weird it's one of these weird fields that it means many things to many people. And when I sit down and try, try to get by it, um, I, I, the first place to start is what threats are you actually concerned about? What things are you concerned about happening? And for some people that might be, I want to keep people from leaking email. That might be, I've got regulatory concerns. That might be, you know, we're worried about ransomware. But you, you've got to figure out what their concerns are to figure out a starting place because it means so many things to so many people. And because of that kind of ambiguity, when you talk to a CEO about cybersecurity, he's thinking DDoS maybe if he's eBay, and that might be a real concern of the business. But if you're like a media company, I care about making sure that my television station keeps broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I, I've got very different concerns there. Um, and... and I think it's almost harder to have that conversation with a CIO. And, and I think that your CIOs and CTOs sometimes can actually be a higher source of friction than non-technical executives. And the, the biggest reason is their perception of security 
might be wildly different than than what yours is. Which so which which segues into a, a a question I had on my list for you is sure. in, a, in a perfect world, who should the CISO report to? Should it report to the CIO? Should it report up to the CEO? Where in the organization should in a in a in let's assume there's a perfect world. So I I think it's so. If the point you're making specific. is that sometimes they speak different languages, where yeah, I mean I I think it's organizationally specific, and it, uh, again it kind of goes to people's personalities if. If you're button heads with the CIO, you shouldn't be reporting to them. Um, if the CIO is like the one technical person and it's been fully delegated security and he, like, he or she is on board with, with all the stuff that you're doing, I don't see any reason that you need to report to the CEO because you know, the accountability and what they're going to care about is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've seen it where she says report to CFOs, CIOs, CTOs. I've seen them report to compliance and legal there's no right or wrong place to put them as long as they're actually empowered to do their job. And if, if their job is in conflict with their boss's job, that's when the problem starts. And that's where I, I think some of the more contentious areas to have that are reporting to a CIO. Um, just because their idea of security might be, you know, our firewalls need to do X and they're not as concerned about you know, what's exposed to the public web or things that are dealing with like social media and what your exposure there, there might be. So it, it it really does depend on, on specific organizations. But I've also seen a lot of CISOs that report to CIOs that do extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just so case by case specific. Yeah, there's an ongoing discussion in the industry about where where in the org chart the CISO belongs. And like you said, it, it varies from industry to industry. And you ask this question to 10 people, you'll probably get 10 different answers. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, regardless of who they report to, is that they should always be in the executive conversations. That they might not need to report to the CEO, but when the CEO is giving a debrief to his reports, I think that the CISO should be present. Because the CISO should understand what the long-term strategic goals are, what the challenges for, for the business are, what things are impacting revenue, what things are impacting client acquisition, what things are impacting the operations and, and delivery of your product or service. Like that, That's stuff that if you don't report to the CEO, you might not get, but you don't necessarily have to report to them to find out that stuff. So if there's enough communication across the business about you know wh- wh- where the business is actually going, I, I think that's that's the thing that the CISO doesn't get uh, enough exposure to probably is is that conversation to be able to figure out you know if you're trying to go after a, a new line of business or make an acquisition or all these things, there are preemptive things the CISO can be doing to try and help either protect that you know. That, that information doesn't get out, that people aren't trying to front-run it with a trade, that people aren't trying to, you know, that a competitor doesn't find out. I mean, there's so many things that you can do if you're involved, and you can get involved early. Because I, I think if you're a, a CISO or you're a brand-new security analyst, the worst thing that, that you can hear is that you're being brought in at the very last moment right before it's going into production. Yeah, you're being so, set up to fail right there and then. It, Exactly. The earliest point that you can possibly get brought in is really on that executive, you know, briefing. 
You mentioned nation state earlier. How closely do you pay attention to nation state campaigns? Some of the threat intel coming, uh, some of the information uh, coming out of threat intel vendors. And I ask specifically because you, you, you're managing security for a media house. Sure, uh, I know one just that from happens my previous... to have a <laughs> the the audience of one uh, that happens to 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 influence a lot of things. Absolutely, yeah. and um, I. I know for a fact that media houses are under attack by a lot of these uh, external nation state campaigns. Um, How how do you view the threat model of your organization versus another place where you might have played this role? And the other question is, I I hear a lot of people saying, I don't really pay attention or care about nation state attacks because I'm not not a target. I'm not in that segment uh, that they target. But then we get you know, issues of collateral damage. We just saw what happened with Maersk and some other places that went down uh, from a ransomware attack. So uh, how do you balance, like, I'm not really a target, but... uh, So uh, to to start off for any of your your listeners, we don't currently, nor do we have any plans to do anything with Bitcoin. We hold no Bitcoin, (laughs) so if... (laughs) So so, uh, we're we're, we're just not in a position to pay for it, so... um, all right. So, what are we worried about with like nation states? the 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 reality is, um, it, so, all right. So, so let me take a step back here because a thing that I th- I found that was fascinating was when I started to dig in to a media company and what their concerns are. It was very different than say like financial services. So, financial services is highly regulated. You've got confidential information, and at the end of the day, you even have like the, you know, money, right? right and you, there's a bunch of rules in place that you uh, you have to follow. There's access to SWIFT servers. There's access to moving money and changing account balances. And there's so many things on a compliance level that, like, it just, it, it can be overwhelming sometimes. But um, that's a very different thing where we've got a, a an obligation to kind of protect that stuff and keep it secret. Right, so I'm I'm supposed to have confidentiality and integrity and all the you know the classic stuff there. Mm-hmm. The media side is really more about availability. It's about the it, it's not that I really have an obligation to you know protect data, and, and I do. You know, don't get me wrong. Like our our HR data is stuff we don't want getting out. We you know there's confidential documents and there's confidential emails. I mean, th- there is stuff that could be bad. But at the end of the day, as long as we can keep broadcasting, we're still getting paid. Right. Your priority is availability. Exactly. Like uh, for our newsroom, there could be a confidential source for some big story. That's a thing that we want to protect. But at the end of the day, like our biggest number one concern is make sure the broadcast stays up, that we're still able to deliver the content that we're contractually obligated to send people so that they can keep billing for the ads that keep us that keep the place running. I mean, like that's kind of the the brass tacks of it is, you know, I, I'm not as concerned if I, I can't go on to the corporate intranet. I'm not as concerned if I can't get the email today, because as long as we can still broadcast, we're still a viable business, and that's really kind of the the biggest difference that I'd say for for kind of the media and broadcast world. Mm-hmm. Um, now. That changes inside of like 21st Century Fox and some of the other business divisions. So, for instance, uh, like uh, one of our our uh, production studios for for films, like they they actually have a different concern 
Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of supply chain risks and and, and uh, intellectual property being sent to partners globally, and you're exactly. relying on them to secure it. And that's exactly right. Like they want to be able to distribute their content when and how that the, they need to, because that's how they control their their like revenue sources. Their kind of obligation to disclose isn't there in the same way that a news or traditional broadcast firm is. And uh, there's just like some very clear distinctions there that I think kind of you can take a step back and go, all right, it's not the end of the world. Like maybe the website's down for something, you know, maybe this is an issue, but it's not the thing that's going to keep you up at night. Like if like a thing that would keep me up at night would be like ransomware for a broadcast network targeting a bunch of IOT. Like right. That, that, that that's literally a affects it, availability. Exactly. Exactly. What What are some when when you are making buying decisions, uh, purchasing technology, purchasing services, or whatever? What are What are you know What are some of the main uh, thoughts that go into what to purchase and who to purchase from? Uh, like we, we mentioned earlier about all these newfangled toys, micro-segmentation, sure. anti-ransomware, there's threat in yeah. CM, you have to have a sock. Uh, so so it's, still, it's still early for me. Um, I'm, st- I'm still getting a handle on kind of what I'm planning to buy. Right, not necessarily for Fox, scratches. but, but it, in a more gen- generic sense. So, so for me, I, I, I try to kind of go from the bottom up looking at, uh, the technology for kind of basic stuff, your segmentation, your asset management, your patch management, a, a lot of your kind of meat and potatoes. But I, I don't have any like one product that I'm necessarily tied to. Um, it, when you jump between different companies, you find out they've got different different uh, uh, relationships with different vendors of all varying sizes. Um, I, I, I do, out of personal preference, uh, prefer to go with startups when possible. Uh, having founded and run one, uh, it's uh, it's hard. It's difficult, and uh, the the more kind of big big name logos that you can get on the board, the the more likely that you'll be successful. So I do try to do what I can for for startups. But uh, that said, I mean we're also a you know Fortune five hundred company. So you know there, there's also a Microsoft and. You know, uh, Google, Amazon, like your your big names, plus all of yeah, your you, kind you're of, locked in to th- 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 yeah. those anyway. Yeah, I mean, and then you've got your traditional kind of enterprise vendors. There's no there's no one good or bad one that uh, that like I want to kind of call out right Mind, now. Right. But the the first thing that like I do is always just kind of start running through budgets and see what stuff <laughs> we're actually using. Right? Like, what stuff are we actually using? What stuff are we wasting time on? In, in, in fact, it's it, it's a new metric that I I, I, I want to start to push out, which is how much time do we spend in each tool, right? Like start pulling uh, like web logs for each console for each tool, and just tell me usage statistics, not not what the tool's doing. How much time are my people spending it, right? Like, are we if, really relying on it? Do we really need it? Exactly. Are we spending 80% of our time doing like incident response, uh, like investigations? Are we spending half of our time looking at a Palo Alto console? Like, uh, what, what stuff are you spending most of your time in? 
And oftentimes you'll find out that you're spending a, a hell of a lot more time in the console for a tool that it turns out is wasting your time rather than providing value. Um, now, that's not entirely true, but you know, the, there are a number of cases where you waste more time trying to get a tool to work than, than it actually provides value to you. And I, I think that's one of the, the challenges of vendors and all these toys now is how much additional work these tools actually create. And, and having run a micro-segmentation company, like one of the, the big friction issues for getting to market is the tools work fine. I mean, sure, I, I can talk about why I think our approach to technology was better or worse than, than other players, but the biggest thing that they were all getting hit with, and the biggest friction there is I'm asking your team to do more work. I'm asking them to do hard, boring, grueling work, and there's not a lot of people that want to do more work because they've got plenty of work to do as it stands right now. Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask a selfish, a selfish question because this sure. is something I've been kind of noodling and thinking about a lot, is this uh, <laughs> notion of um, of reliance on bug bounty programs. Pr- pr- yeah. Pretty hot sector, hot space sure. now. We had the issue, uh, public issue at Uber, lost their CISO, uh, CSO over, you know, some controversy around bug bounty programs when you as a CISO not necessarily at Fox but you know yeah. in, in your world uh, when you uh, try to determine how do I ferret out whatever bugs might be in my infrastructure uh, how how do I opt between uh, choosing to go the bug bounty route and crowdsource it versus you know uh, uh, red team, blue team, or penetration testing. H- sure. H- how do you think about that? And you know, uh, at a basic level. Well, to to start with, uh, just to t- touch on the Uber thing, I've known a couple of folks over there on their team, and for everything, and I was an immediate skeptic when people were like, "Oh, they they screwed up." That that was the most misunderstood a poorly communicated series of kind of unfortunate events. And I think Joe and the team over there should be kind of commended for as good a job as they did because they had built an excellent program. And for what I know of those guys, like the initial narrative was just off. Um, but right, that, but then the New York Times piece didn't really answer the questions clearly either. Um, no, I mean, th- there was so much ambiguity and so many people that were looking for Uber to have done something wrong. Well, that's and true. I, there was a lot of that in the, in the, in the very, in the, the, the day of, because I was on Twitter. Yeah. I believe you were on Twitter as well talking I, about I, I, was I definitely it, was. Yeah, I was, was like, was this it? is insane. No one would have done it this way. That's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think those guys got a bad rap for what, when the details came out was actually pretty, pretty reasonable g- given the actual details there. Um, but, but back to your point about kind of bug bounties versus the more traditional methods. I, I think it's, uh, I don't know where bug bounties sit long term. Um, I think they're useful. I think they're interesting. What do you mean? What, what do you mean by sit long term in terms I, I mean, of the, the, I, the business model sticking around? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, – I, part of me thinks that you know, bug bounties were trying to kind of commoditize uh, like, like pen testing. And to a, a certain extent, I, I think they've, they've done that somewhat. I, I think they do have some I, 
I've got some skepticism of kind of where the bug bounty world's going to be in like 10 years. Uh, but we'll still do pen tests. We'll still still be looking to do like true red team, blue team. Um, I, I, I just don't know if I necessarily believe in the model long term, but I've got some friends that work for the bug bounty companies and I, I, I wish them all well. I'm not sure if the model's necessarily going to survive, but I, I think... I think it can be valuable sometimes if you kind of want to you know, dip your toe in the water. If it turns into kind of a continuous assessment thing, that's kind of, like that's kind of interesting. Um, the biggest thing for like bug bounty programs, I think, is just having a venue to triage publicly reported stuff. And I, I think some of the engagements that I've seen from the the bug bounty programs feel more like a more more like a, a pen test light. And I think that's I think that's some of my kind of uh, kind of consternation with it is that like I, I just don't know if I'm fully uh, you know feet first on that that can augment or replace a pen test as much as I, I think it's just a, a valid way of vetting bugs that come in through through public channels. Right, and on, on the downside, uh, 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 you know. The argument is that a, a pen test only gives you this point-in-time assessment and with, with, with your infrastructure changing so rapidly and you move into the cloud and you're doing uh, a, a million different things at a time, a pen test can be outdated in, in a short time. Is there a place for pen test in a continuous setting, like some sort of continuous quarterly scheduled pen test? That uh, I could, yeah, I mean, the, there, there's definitely a place for that. I, I think a lot of places can't react to the results fast enough that, you know, monthly or quarterly makes sense for the entire place. But a, a pen test is also not necessarily as thorough as what I think pen testing is, is made out to be. I, I see it more as kind of a, a map of where you need to focus, right? If, if somebody breaks in and is able, uh, you know, and, and let's say this is not constrained to a single application, but they can break in and they pop a machine. They move. They they move laterally, and uh, it's not through creds. It's through like a known bug. I've got a patching problem there. I don't have two hundred machines that are now infected, right? Like it, it should be directing what projects you start to take on to address classes of bugs or classes of, of techniques. And I, I think that's what some people forget. Like it's not a list of. I have X vulnerabilities. It's these vulnerabilities were possible. Go get to the root cause of why. So I, I'm I'm not sure that they're necessarily used properly all of the time. But I, I like pen tests in general have uh, a lot of value. And having been a pen tester in in pre previous jobs, like it, it's definitely useful, especially if you don't have a good feel for where your infrastructure is. Right. right. It. it it's it's arguably most useful when you're coming in kind of blind because it's going to give you an idea of kind of where the most immediate vulnerable things are. Um, but I, I, I think that's got to be balanced with starting to get better kind of operational awareness of where your environment is. Uh, my, my good friend Tom Cross, who was a co-founder of uh, Drawbridge with me. Um, so to Tom has talked at length uh, before about kind of your cyber terrain, about your kind of digital, your digital infrastructure and what that looks like and how essentially if you can understand your own cyber terrain better than an attacker, 
that's how you have kind of an inherent upper hand. Um, the, the head of uh, TAO uh, had spoken at the Enigma conference a couple years back, said something roughly similar, which was the first thing we do when we come into you know, a, a hostile environment is we map it out and we understand your network better than you understand your network. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a thing that you know, people are not focusing enough on, I think, is understanding their, their, their own environments. Um, a lot of that a lot of that depends on it depends entirely on the quality of your staff though uh, oh absolutely and, and absolutely. I, I want to dig in a little bit and I know we're running out of time I don't want to go, go over what we slotted in but um, how, how how do you make sure you have the right people in place and you're attracting the right skills and talent in 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 a segment that has a um, Massive talent shortage. Everyone is competing for the same set of folks, and startups are appearing everywhere. Security is top of mind, front burner thing. How do you? Oh, I can't imagine trying to figure out staffing a security organization in this environment where there just so, isn't enough quality talent. Yeah, um, I, I I can say first and foremost, people are paying through the nose for it. Um, I, I've seen some. Some job postings from recruiters that that'll send stuff my way, and I, I try to forward as much on as possible. But um, I, I've not seen, and, and granted, this is all in for the New York City area. I'm not seeing much for like cloud security engineers, senior uh, security engineers. I'm seeing stuff in that range for like three fifty to four fifty. Yeah, it's crazy. Stuff. That's that's insane, but. There's such a huge shortage. Um, there really is just this dearth of talent. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of follow it up to say, if, if I knew how to hire and cultivate and develop talent uh, and be able to staff at an org and I had a repeatable process for that. You wouldn't uh, be a CISO. I, I would not be a CISO. I'd be running a, a recruiting program. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I'd make a hell of a lot more money doing that. Is there um, a- is there value in looking in non-traditional places, though, for talent? That they, it might not necessarily be someone with cybersecurity background, but they might have background in, yeah, in a certain I, area. And I, I, f- think, I think there's a ton of it. I, I think and, uh, the API-ification of sorts, <laughs> um, this, this thing where like everything's got an API to it, especially in the more like very kind of aggressively technical shops like the Microsofts and the Amazons of the world, uh, and and some of the bigger startups like the Ubers and Duo and stuff like that, uh, these guys on their security teams actually have uh, like development staff, and I think those can be kind of force multipliers in certain cases for how you can kind of rapidly correlate data, start to push out some some instant response uh, 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 kind of actions. Like there, there's stuff that your tools are going to fall short on, and I think that those those developers can really kind of accelerate. Uh, what your kind of analysts are, are doing, and the, the more and more that we kind of have this talent shortage, I think the more and more you're, you're going to see more people start to automate as much of that as possible, right? Uh, if they can triage and cut down just the number of alerts, or try to automate, uh, you know, the, some portion of the process, right? The, the, and stop relying on manpowers. Well, so I, I was just I was just watching a talk from uh, Blue Hat, where where they talked about uh, doing incident response at scale, 
And some of the biggest things that they took on were really the automation and like triage of malware and just these processes that took an individual person like an hour. They would do it scale for every single alert that they've ever seen. Uh, and they would, you know, get that down where they've cut an hour down to like five minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, this is so, the Blue Hat Israel talk. I think, I, I think uh, of- it's whatever came out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I, I think that it was Blue Hat Israel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they think the guys were talking about uh, uh, automating a lot of the alerting coming out of Azure. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's the incident res- response at scale talk. I, I thought they did some fascinating stuff with it. Do you, since since you, 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 you've been kind of a veteran in this industry dating back to X-Force R&D team, which was oh, yeah. like the, the gold standard back in the day of, of security research teams. Do you, do you just to, to wrap up, do you think we've gotten better at security? I mean, the platforms are uh, a lot more robust, even Mac, Windows, anti-exploit mitigations are built in everywhere. We've kind of gotten a, a feel for uh, technology. Yet every day there's a new breach, new massive breach, disclosures popping out. Where, where do you see this evolution of security from your you know, early days uh, at X-Force Spy to today? Are we getting better or should we... Is everything going to be okay? <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. I like It is unlikely we're going to run into cyber Pearl Harbor or whatever boogeyman scenario that people talk about. Um, I, I think that kind of thing is is not very, is not very it's just not very likely. Well, you could make the argument that uh, that we're already there with 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 all these massive breaches. Like everyone's email is compromised. Well, so a, a prediction I, I made this a couple months ago, and I will kind of reiterate it, which is, um, and it's it's kind of in the same vein as the the auto exploit discussion that was on Twitter in the last week, where yeah. People are like, oh, it's it's so irresponsible that someone automated Metasploit to use <laughs> Metasploit. I'm like, that that's that's silly. Um, what what I think we're, we're going to see in the next 12 to 18 months, and th- there's tools like Crack Map Exec. Um, someone is going to essentially turn that into a worm that uses internal lateral movement techniques, and they're going to find somebody through like an automated phishing campaign and then they're going to drop this thing and it's going to start scraping creds and using Mimi cats and it's going to start crawling through the network and propagate. And when that happens, I think, I think that is the closest thing to like a real serious threat that could be kind of existential for corporate, for corporate infosec teams. Like that's one that keeps me up at night that if that happens, like, like automated lateral movement at scale. Automated lateral movement at scale. That's right. That's the one that would keep me up at night. Um, I think we're getting better at security in general, but that's one that... Hard, like, really hard to defend against. It, it's really tough. Um, I mean, we're, we're internally discussing ideas like getting rid of domains just entirely, moving to kind of like beyond core. We're talking Chromebooks and certain stairs. Like... There is so much shared infrastructure and so many just these historically necessary but potentially not relevant today things that, like, people really need to start thinking about getting back to basics but rethinking from the ground up. Because if that happens, that's going to be a new era. 
Um, th those are going to be loud cyber weapons. Um, I, I think what the, the 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 shock and awe campaign and like and like uh, in Afghanistan, I think is a military term for rapid dominance. Like that's what that's going to be is like military rapid dominance in a cyber world, mm. and it's like that would be the thing that I think would shift a conversation because it's not just going to be did you patch right the same thing now that shifted the conversation for microsoft with the warm euro back in the uh, exactly early when you code red and nimda and all that stuff yeah yeah dave litchfield has predicted a, a oracle warm as kind of his uh digital pearl harbor we haven't seen it yet so i'm writing down this prediction you said what in 18 months i'd say within 18 months like the distance Do you think it's already happening at a smaller level uh, I, I mean, people doing pen tests and, and like red teaming are doing exactly that. They've just not automated the, hey, once I figure out I can log into the box, throw the tool onto the box and do it again. <laughs> like th that stuff is just not happening, uh, at least from what I've seen in the wild. Now, I'm sure there are some internal pen test teams that have automated certain parts of that. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is going to be a thing. And the distance for where these tools are to where they could be, you know, talking to Empire and Bloodhound and all, all that stuff together. The distance there is somebody who can do some Python scripting and who can just figure out some logic of how they want to propagate. Right. And the reality of that is like that that's an easy thing to do. And that's gonna force people to have to do the really tough jobs of Going back and, and re-examining like their segmentation strategies, going back and looking at least privileged and figuring out that you know having a hotel desk inside of an office and uh, the expression a, a like hotel desk is uh, seating is expensive and for those of us in in New York and San Francisco like we know that so maybe you don't have uh, you know maybe that's not your computer because you're only there a couple days a week other people can sit down and use it that's pretty common. Um, you know, a lot of places are moving to laptops and everybody gets a laptop, so that's not as big of a concern, but like there are real problems that, that are going to come up there. And I, I think that's, if, if we see something warmified to that degree, it's going to shift conversations from, Hey, uh, you know, what's our vulnerability management strategy to, we have to rethink our network and rethink the, the infrastructure for our company. And that's a very big conversation, and that's a very expensive conversation to have, and a lot of places are not going to have the tolerance for it. Right, right. All right, John, let's leave it there. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Best of luck on the new gig. And thank, thank you, Ren. I hope I'll see you at RSC or somewhere we can continue I, this over a beer. I, I, I should I should be out there. Um, you know, worst case, uh, we, we should do a follow-up one uh, in 18 months, what, regardless if I'm, if I'm right or wrong. Got it. I'm putting it on the calendar. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Ryan.